Good morning. I like talking, so I'll wait a little bit. How are you, Mark? Good. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you and to be opening God's Word. Uh, I love doing so in this capacity when I get to. Uh, Some of you might know Tim was sick this past week. Uh, Praise the Lord, he's feeling better. Um, But I got to find out this week that I would get to teach, so you guys are getting the B team today, and it's going to be a good time. But uh, is anybody excited about Christmas time? I am. And uh, because it is Christmas time, I thought I would start with an illustration that probably most people in the room are familiar with, uh, but maybe something about it that you did not know. So the movie Home Alone. Who's watched it already? Like everybody, this is awesome. So almost everybody in all three services has already watched it this season. Uh, As everybody probably knows, when Home Alone came out, it was one of the highest grossing movies of all time. And it continues to be a movie that's watched every single Christmas season by houses all over the country and probably the world. Yet my wife and I watched a documentary this past week, uh, and I learned some things about the film that I did not know. The crew worked tirelessly to build a stage in a gymnasium in Chicago, Illinois. So if you think about the movie, every single scene except one that was shot inside the McAllister house was actually inside a gymnasium in a school, an abandoned school in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I did not know that. So interestingly enough, they worked very hard and tirelessly to build this stage. They got all the actors together. They had everything set, ready to film the movie. But then when it came time to shoot, and before they could, they had to get the go-ahead from the studio. Now, Home Alone was actually slated to be a Warner Brothers film. But the budget that they gave was a little bit too high based on their vision and what they wanted the movie to be like. It was a little bit too big, so Warner Brothers said to them that if they cannot bring it down to a certain amount, that they would have to can the film. Over a lunch that just happened to take place at this same time, a 20th Century Fox executive learned about the film and told the director that if it does get canned, to call him, and they would immediately pick the film back up for the original budget amount. So the crew started working, they started filming, and they turned in their original budget. Of course, Warner Brothers said no, and they canned the film. But the call was made, and the next day, there were 20th Century Fox t-shirts on every single chair in that gymnasium in Chicago. See, the crew had a promise given to them, and they trusted that promise. Because of that trust, they were diligent in their work, They were faithful to the vision for the film that they had, not lowering the budget, not being lazy, but sticking to the plan. And Fox provided the provision and security needed to see that movie through to its end. The rest of the story, as we know, is history, right? But what does this have to do with our passage? Well, in an obvious way, it is a terrible analogy compared to the Word of God, But in another way, I do hope that it provides something of a a guide map for our mind through this thick text of Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, that God gives his word, his promises, and he stands by them. 
And God's people are faithful and they persevere through trials. And God secures the way in which his people can persevere. So through this passage, we're going to highlight those three things. First, that God's promises are true. Second, that God's people are faithful. And third, that God's provision is secure. So let's read the passage, Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. I'll read it for us, and then we will pray, and we will dive in and see what God has for us this morning. Hebrews 6, verse 13. This is the word of our Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner, because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you, O God. We look to you um, for new truth. God, or maybe even for old truth but that you would remind us of the things that you have for us in this text, in your word. Father, I thank you that we are in a place where we can be a family and openly read your word together, study it, know it. And through your word, God, we have the revelation of who you are as you chose to give it to us. So God, open our hearts and our minds. Give us new truth today. Holy Spirit, would you work in that way? Speak to us about who you are and who that means we should be. God, I do ask that every word that I speak, every statement that I make that is true and is from you would fall on ears that are ready to listen and hear and lives that that will be changed. God, in anything that I say that is from me and is not truthful and is not from you, God falls on deaf ears. Lord, would your work be evident in our life? I pray that our time together this morning would be a burning incense, an aroma, pleasing to your nostrils. We do, Lord, give you this time as a worship, and you are worthy of this investment of our life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this family. Thank you for salvation found only in Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So our passage here uh, this morning was actually introduced back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, when the author first actually mentions Melchizedek in this book. 
Uh, actually, I think he mentioned it earlier, but this is where this passage started, chapter 5, verse 10. Here he mentions him again as a bookend to this section and is introducing the great exposition of the high priesthood of Jesus through the Melchizedekian order that begins in chapter 7, verse 1. So this is just a continuance of Tim's message that he preached last Sunday. There are drifters and people who have fallen away, and there is a warning to not be found out to be one of those people. You can have church, but without Jesus, you have nothing. And for the church that, the, that this author is writing to, there is a confidence for believers, those that are found in Christ. God will not forget their love and the work that they've done for His name and His saints, chapter 6, verse 10. There's a full assurance for the church's hope, chapter 6, verse 11, and an example of those that have inherited God's promises through faith and perseverance, chapter 6, verse 12. There's a warning, persevere, be assured, don't be lazy, know Christ and know Him more and more and more into spiritual maturity, chapter 6, verse 1. Receive Him and receive the assurance that comes with Him, as Tim talked about last week. So that's the context that brings us up to where we are. And where we are, the first thing that we see is that God's promises are true. Much is made by the writer of Hebrews regarding the trustworthiness of God's promises. And to highlight that, he's going to draw on the covenant between himself, between God, and between Abraham. So God swears by himself. Why does he do that? Well, because it is only by himself that he can swear by. The text is pretty straightforward here. Look at it, verse 16. God has no one greater to swear by. So you guys all know in court, right? We put our hand on the Bible, we raise our other hand and say, so help me God. And I've never had to do that. Unless you know my history and how colorful it is, I've had to do it many times. Um. But we have to say, so help me God, right? A greater, higher authority is who we are swearing that we will tell the truth by. So what if God was placed in that situation? What would he say? He'd have to say, inevitably, so help me, me, right? He has no other higher authority to place his word in. And some theological truths can be found here and are demonstrated through this recalling of the Abrahamic covenant. The first of those is that God cannot lie. That would cause him to sin and render him unfit to be God. Of course, this is impossible, right? God does not sin. He cannot sin. He will not sin. And he is fit to be God. If he could lie, second though, that would tarnish his character. But God is holy. He is a holy God, pure righteous, and just. And these are eternal truths about the characteristics and the nature of God. The characteristic is that He cannot lie. He will not sin. He does not do that. The reason behind that is His nature. He's holy, He's perfect, and He's just and pure. And God wanted to use Abraham for His purposes, to be a blessing to the nations and to make a people for Himself through Abraham. 
We see that abbreviated promise here in verse 14. I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. God proved that this would happen, not because of Abraham, but because of God himself. So he guaranteed it with an oath. He did this in two primary ways that we see back in the Old Testament. The first of those is in Genesis 15. God told Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. To seal that covenant, God had Abraham bring some specific animals together and cut them in half and lay them apart from each other. This might sound kind of crazy or weird, but uh, commentator writer Kent Hughes points this out about that ritual act. He says, This was one of the greatest events in the history of salvation. And the Lord commemorated it with a further sign when he ordered Abram to make sacrifices and divide them into two rows. Then when the sun had set, God appeared in the night as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch and passed between the pieces. You can find that in Genesis 15, 17. In the traditional figure eight pattern is, uh, of the covenant, that was a, a Hebraic version of that, how they would walk through. God passed through in that manner, signifying that his promise was unconditional and that if he, God, would be torn asunder like the animals if he failed to keep his promise. So I don't know how this would work out in the eternal realm and theologically, but if God were to not keep his promise, it would literally tear him in two. What that's showing us is that that will never happen God keeps his promises. And God again affirms his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, when he says, by myself, I have sworn. And then goes on to let Abraham know that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So what we see is God cannot lie. That would cause him to sin, render him unfit to be God. And that is impossible. And it would tarnish his character, also impossible, because he is holy. Two unchangeable things are in view here based on all of these principles that are God's promises and God's word. Both of those things are firm and secure and true always, all the time. And that is what our author of Hebrews has been trying to get at. When God makes an oath, it sticks. God's promises always come through. God's word is always intact. His oath is binding, and it will not be thwarted by anything, ever. And you know this to be true. I know that you do. You've seen it happen in your life. If you have a covenant relationship with God, undoubtedly there has been a time in your life where you have had to look back and see God's promises working out in real time for you. He has shown himself as true and steadfast, and you need to remember it. And there's many times I know in my life where I tend to forget that his promises are true all the time. And you know, sometimes maybe myself or all of us, we kind of think back on like Israel and we think, man, how could those guys, how did they keep forgetting? God led them out of Egypt. He kept all of his promises, yet they kept failing to remember them. But yet we see that happen in our own life many times. But we have so much to look back on. God has undoubtedly been true for you. His promises have been secure for you through many instances in your life, and you have those to look back on. One of the ones that I think about uh, fairly often when I 
think about is God for us is um, there was a time when I used to work at the Ford plant here in Claycomo over there and my, our, our family was pretty secure. We made good living, uh, had great insurance, retirement, everything. We were set for life with my employment there and I'd been there for a decade. Uh, but then God was calling us into a life of missions and ministry and we took that calling very seriously and we prayed my wife and I with, prayed to the Lord for three months before making any steps in any direction if this was from the Lord. And three months into that, we knew this is from God. We knew it was His will. I always know God's will for all of our lives. It's to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that He has commanded. That much is true. That's the will for everybody. But how that plays out in each person's life is vastly different. But we were figuring out this is exactly how God was placing that will on our life. And we needed to trust him in that. And so we did. I quit working at the Ford plant and started working at a great missions agency around here just as an administrative assistant part-time. So our income took a hit of about three quarters, maybe half. And of course, that's difficult uh, to walk through as a family of five. And I remember on a Wednesday night, In our kitchen, I remember what chair Rochelle was sitting in, and we were praying, and we were having a difficult time paying our bills, taking that financial hit, and she prayed, God, I don't know how, if you'll put money in our mailbox, but we need your help to see this work through. We need your help. And it was Thursday, the very next day, we had $2,000 cash in an envelope in our mailbox, unmarked. God's promises are true, and He will see them all through. Before I even knew what it meant that God's promises were true, we would sing about it as church, as a child. I went to a small conservative church in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and we would sing this hymn that proclaimed that God's promises are true. And we'll sing it. I know you guys don't want me to sing it alone, so sing it with me. Standing, I'm standing Standing on the promises of Christ, my Savior, standing, I'm standing. I'm standing on the promises of God. You see, you guys know it. You know that His promises are true. He makes promises and you can stand on them. If movie producers can stand on the promises of studio execs, you can stand on the promises of God. The writer of Hebrews is trying to make that very clear. God cannot, cannot let himself down. Therefore, he will not ever let you down. His promises are true. Yet we also see something very special about the people of God. He starts, we start seeing that with Abraham. And it flows from what the writer has been saying all along, that God's covenant people are to be faithful. Remember, the writer just got done telling them not to be lazy believers, not to be worrying about their salvation, even not to be worrying about their suffering that they are enduring, and not to turn from Christ and fall into apostasy, but to be confident and assured. So he uses Abraham as the example for these Jewish Christians. Remember, it was Abraham who had faith and believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Abraham believes the Lord, and the Lord has him cut up these animals and passes through them. At the next covenantal meeting, God gives his own, his word by his own name. And it is right after that, that Abraham took Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. Abraham's faith was massive. Right after explaining this Old Testament context and how faithful God is in his promises, a professor of Old Testament interpretation, Peter Gentry, says this. He says, on the other hand, all biblical covenants also demand an obedient partner. Verse 15, Abraham obtained the promise through his faith. He had faith. He held on, no matter the cost. No matter what it was costing Abraham, he was putting his faith in the Lord. His faith gave him patience and endurance, but it also gave him zeal and action. And when God commanded, Abraham obeyed. But the reason for pointing this out is so that the reader knows that there is a strong encouragement right here and that there is a hope that is set before them. Look at verse 17. God wanted all of Abraham's descendants to know that his promises were true. Right? It says, for the heirs. Yes, they were true for Abraham. That much has been obvious. But also for the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant to get and to have God's promises for their life. That's all the family of God. If you remember, just weeks ago when we were in chapter 2, Jesus is unashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. This is a familial event through all of history. God having promises true for all of his people, all of his children, all of God's family. Though these Jewish believers are fleeing refugees, they're called in verse 18, they're encouraged to seize hope, to seize it. And how do you seize something? You don't do it in a tired manner or in a flaccid manner. You have tenaciousness to you, ambition to seize something. This language denotes an urgency to the matter. Remember last week's message, how it was bookend with the warning to not be lazy. Commentator writer Donald Guthrie says this about it, and I think he puts it very well. The idea of seizure implies a taking hold of and a grasping in a resolute manner, which again stresses the supremacy, the supreme importance of the action. Hope is of such a character that it needs tenacity to retain it. It does not simply just happen. It is both set out as an objective reality to be seized and also as a subjective reality to be personally experienced. So I ask you today, are you seizing what Christ has for you? If you know me, you know I'm not talking about money or status or power or anything along those lines, but about Him, about Christ. Are you seizing relationship with Him? Are you seizing time to abide with Him, to follow Him in His will and in His footsteps? From the beginning of this chapter 6, you remember the reference, are you drinking spiritual milk when you should be eating solid food? Are you satisfied with a bottle when you should be feasting at a dinner table? 
The promises are secure. They're not going anywhere. The oath has been given. Are you responding in faith and in patience? Trusting in the Lord and seizing His obedient calling on your life. Here's the thing. Abraham was a role model for this. Yes, of course he was. Hence why he's talked about so much in this passage and in this book and even in the entire canon, the whole Bible. But Abraham made mistakes. Okay, Abraham was not always perfect. God's promises are true. God's people are to be faithful. But none of the covenantal mediators, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, etc., none of them show themselves to be entirely, perfectly faithful. There is no one fully obedient who can fulfill the demands of the covenant of God. So God secured that provision for us. But that is what this book has been about and what brings encouragement and zeal to seize that encouragement, seize that hope. You can be encouraged. You can have zeal. You can seize the opportunity. You can seize encouragement and hope because Jesus has secured the provision and fulfilled the covenant for you. What have we seen already in this book? Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the most high priest. And Jesus entered and fulfilled the covenant that no one could. God, in the flesh, fulfilling his promises by him. Self, so that you can have a hope and an anchor for your soul. What is the writer of Hebrews telling us here? Oh, don't be lazy. Seize this hope. It's an anchor for your soul. Like a boat immovable among thrashing waves you have an anchor. What I don't want you to get the picture of is maybe my dad's little boat that we go tubing behind in his little 12-inch anchor that the boat still moves around. I'm talking Titanic-sized anchors, right? That they're deep into the ocean floor. They're not moving anywhere. I saw a YouTube video actually... (laughs) That kind of goes along with this. Kurt showed it to us. I forget why we were talking about anchors, but it was about one of these ships. You can probably find it. Huge, like Titanic-sized ship. An anchor bigger than this stage was getting ready to drop. Unfortunately, there was a tugboat underneath this anchor uh, because, of course, the ship is huge, and I don't know how this tugboat got into the wrong area, but it did. I don't think anybody was hurt, but... This anchor starts dropping, and if you've seen the chain run from an anchor on a ship that fast, it's mind-boggling and horrific. It's just moving fast. That anchor falls, lands on the front of this tugboat, and that boat goes out into the air and then crashes back down. And that 
anchor did not stop for that boat. It kept going straight down to the bottom of the ocean. Quite fascinating and terrifying. But that is the picture I want you to have for the anchor that's for your soul. It will plow through anything in its way and make itself rooted down deep into you because of Christ. You feeling apathy in your faith? Don't do it. Drop the anchor. Feeling the pull back into Judaism like our friends that Hebrews is writing to or to be like the world? No way. You are firm and secure. Your anchor is solid. Feeling down, forgotten, stressed by life, your anchor entered into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain and secured a place for you. Through his obedient life and death, Jesus allows you now entrance into that inner sanctuary. Multiple commentators I read touched on this point. Jesus was the forerunner, and now you also can approach the throne. We've already been told to approach the throne with boldness back in chapter 4. And how can we do that? Right? Tim talked about this, that the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And even then, he had to have a rope tied around his waist, because if he did it in an impure matter, he would die, and they would have to drag him out. But now, you and I have an opportunity to go into that same throne room anytime we want with no fear, and in fact, with boldness. How does this happen? How can we enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary? Not because of what we have ever done, but because Jesus has fulfilled it all and made the way. Jesus is the provision. He tore the veil. He entered the place No one could, so that all of those found in him may enter too. And not to just stand there, but to seize their hope, labor for God, approach the throne, abide in Christ, firm and secure. God's provision is secure. What do we do with these truths. Some application for us today. How can they affect our lives? Three things I would like for us to leave with on top of the three things we have already learned. God's promises are true. God's people are to be faithful. God's provision is secure. To apply those to our life, here is my encouragement. Number one, trust God. Every person in this room has something that they are waiting on God for or asking Him for. Wait on Him. My challenge to you is this. Trust Him in that season. Trust Him always. If He isn't giving you an answer right away, wait for Him. Be patient. I know myself, probably all of us, we would love to fall asleep and just have neon lights Blinking in our dreams. Do it, do it, do it. Or don't do it, don't do it. Do this. We would love that. But many times he doesn't work that way. Look at the text of what we just read. Abraham, verse 15, waited patiently and obtained the promise. 
If you are in Christ, your promise of salvation is secure. I hope that we flesh that out enough today. But I know there are other things in your life that you are thinking through or battling with. And in those things, trust your Lord. Go to his throne. Ask him, what can I be learning from you in this season, O Lord? Allow him to teach you. To be really practical, write it down for the next week. The one thing you are needing to trust him about, write it down in your notes right now. If you're not a note taker, when you get home, write it down when you get home. And then each day, during or after your study time and your prayer time, write down, what is he showing you through his word? What is he showing you through prayer? What is he teaching you and answering? And trust him in those things. That might be about your own salvation. And if that's true, that would be perfect for this context of this passage. But rest in him. Ask him to be your anchor amongst your thrashing mind. And see how he responds. Second, risk for God. The Abrahamic covenant mentioned in verse 14 was so that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham. It is essentially a covenant that God is going to build his kingdom no matter what. Abraham was willing to risk moving away from his entire family and his homeland, and he did that. He was willing to risk losing his son, and he did that. He risked it all for the Lord and for the promise that God would bring many descendants through him into the family of God. Abraham risked it all. Well, God has done all of that work through Jesus, but he's not done yet. He's still fulfilling that promise. He's still building his kingdom. And you have been given a free pass to the throne room of God. Jesus is your forerunner for that. Jesus risked everything for you to have this ability. He stepped out of heaven. He took the form of a human. And the incarnation is hardly something that we can even comprehend. That God from eternity... No beginning and no end. Stepped out of that into time and space, into a human life. How does that happen? I can't comprehend it, but he was perfectly obedient in that life. He took our just penalty and nailed it to a tree and died. And now you have an anchor for your soul. Risk it all. I'm not talking about getting up 15 minutes early to pray or showing up for small group or church next week. Though those are great things and we should all be doing them, yes. But think about the context here. These Jewish Christians are facing serious hardships. Thus the plea to seize their encouragement. Persecution, hardships, And death were not relegated to just those for whom this book was written. Many, many, many of our brothers and sisters throughout history and even in the world still today risk the same thing. So I ask, will you risk something for God? Knowing His promises are true, desiring to be obedient seizing the encouragement before you, knowing that your eternity is secure. I'm asking you to pray the remainder of this year, 
I know it's only like three weeks. It doesn't have to be every day, but I challenge you to make it so. But at least every week, pray this. Lord, what do you have for me? Or for us, if you're a couple. Lord, what do you have for us? We are available for you and want to know what you want us to risk. Pray that prayer. Three weeks. What do you have for us? We are available. What do you want us to risk? We will do it. See what he does. See what he does. Third and last worship team, you guys can come up. Third thing, look towards the end. I would not preach this text completely without mentioning the eschatological nature of this text. The word forever found in verse 20 is actually supposed to come at the end, and indeed it does in the actual Greek. Forever comes last. Jesus is the high priest forever. And this is what introduces the next section. But you have an eternal, perfect, forerunning high priest that continually intercedes for his church all the time. His priestly prayer for us is the medium for our survival in all things. So I ask you to keep your eyes fixed on the fact that death and eternity are much closer than you think. I don't mean to be morbid about this, but it is true. And if you are not in Christ and hearing me today, I ask you to contemplate this same reality and ask yourself, what holds me back from giving my life to Jesus? If you are in Christ and hearing me today, rest in the promises of him. Heed the words of Peter when he writes in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As you trust in God, as you wait on Him, as you seek to risk everything for Him, rest in your imperishable inheritance and salvation that are being guarded by God Himself. Know that your time with Jesus face to face is coming soon. And I cannot wait. Hold fast to the anchor for your soul. God's promises are true. God's people are faithful. God's provision is secure. And because of that, we can trust God. We can risk it all and look towards that end. I leave you with this poem from Daniel Towner in 1902. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide, and it holds, my anchor holds.
Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. Let us sing those truths as we stand and worship our great King.